HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Nourish and Flourish is a proud supporter of Heritage Radio Network. Nourish and Flourish, handcrafted, ad-free, print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Subscribe at nourishandflourish.site. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. As the year nears its end, please consider a gift to Heritage Radio Network. If you like this show and any of the other 35 shows we produce every week, please go to heritageradionetwork.org donate and become a member today. Today's theme, mushrooms are mushrooming. Regular listeners to this podcast will likely have picked up on the fact that I'm fascinated by mushrooms, the sheer variety of shapes, sizes, colors, flavors, and experience. It's really one of life's great pleasures as far as I'm concerned that you can go for a hike, which in and of itself is a great pleasure, and you can find things that look like they're from an alien planet, then you can figure out how to identify that life form, and then in many cases you can eat it. There's almost nothing like coming upon a perfect fruiting of an edible mushroom and the rush and thrill that you've found it and you get to commune with it and subsequently eat it. The popularity of wild mushrooms is taking off and more and more people are getting into it. It's a great hobby and it engages the body, the brain, and the stomach. I went for a walk recently and then sat down with Ryan Bouchard and Emily Schmidt who run the Mushroom Hunting Foundation in Rhode Island. Hope you enjoy our conversation. We're standing right now in the woods uh, in Charlestown, Rhode Island. It is the 20th of November, which I think might be, even for people that do a, a fair bit of mushroom foraging, seem a little late in the season, right, if you're looking for edibles and things. And so can you talk a little bit about, like, what we might find as we're out here? Well, this, this, uh, this season has been a little cold. Um, and especially when you get into November and early December, it really depends on the temperature. Um, there are some years where, like this year, it's been cold. We're not really expecting to find too much. It hasn't rained a whole lot, and it has been a bit cold. So, you know, it's winding down, but we don't know what's going to happen the rest of the season. And uh, there have been some years where all through November and well into December we were still finding... Even New Year's Day, we were finding edible mushrooms, a couple varieties of mushrooms, edible mushrooms on New Year's Day. It all depends on the weather and the mildness of a winter. Mm. There are things like oyster mushrooms, which peak in December... 
things like the velvet foot enoki, which we find on we fo- found on frozen firewood um, wow. before in January. So things can thrive. If there's one thing I learned about mushrooms is they're truly mystifying and never to be <laughs> underestimated. Uh, they will always surprise you, and there's always exceptions in the world of mushroom hunting. i got to say, this is another topic that we've learned about from uh, Boston mycologist Larry Millman. He leads walks during the winter, and he, he actually sort of specializes in the small and um, often unobserved Bumps on logs. Mushrooms, yes, little <laughs> tiny things that can now. And and he's he's also an ethnographer, and he studies well. He studies people who live in harsh environments. He studies cultures that have learned to deal with that. And he also is a mycologist, and he studies mushrooms that kind of do the same thing. How do how do fungi thrive when the conditions are really harsh? So so he likes to study things in the winter and in uh, harsh climates and things like that. So so it's really fascinating. We've learned a lot from him. Um, especially about taking a closer look uh, at some of the small things. But but this time of year, it's not unheard of to have a great score of large edible mushrooms. Uh, so, you know, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Um, some of the things we might possibly find this late in the year would be, as you mentioned, the uh, fall oysters. Um, there's another one called late fall oysters, which can be a little bitter, but they're another edible mushroom. Um, some of the best ones this time of year would be shaggy manes. Shaggy manes, yeah, shaggy manes are fantastic. Other oh, inky caps too. Right. I'm well, should we walk? Should we walk into the woods a little and see what we see? Let's sure. do it. But my great grandmother taught me a few edible wild plants, but when I was growing up, my parents learned that and put the kibosh on us eating things from the yard. <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't, you know, keep eating dandelion and wintergreen. We were told not to. So. Got into mushrooms with Ryan, and then later after that, got back into plants because I figured we weren't always bringing home mushrooms. Green things abound. Oh, here we are, some perfect little glow-in-the-dark mushrooms. You want to talk about yeah. these? Uh... These are Pinellus stypticus. They're called the bitter oyster. Some may call them medicinal, but I've read they're used in Chinese medicine as a violent purgative. <laughs> so that's not the kind of medicinal we're seeking, right? I mean, you know, I guess if you're looking at, like, an ancient... Uh, you know, an ancient apothecary, right? That there's a nece- there's a time when that yeah. may be necessary. Absolutely. These Absolutely. are really cool though because they're bioluminescent. One of our few native oh, bioluminescent wow. varieties. That, uh, and also the stypticus in the Latin name refers to the fact that you can use it as a styptic to staunch bleeding in the wild sure. in an emergency. I've never used it for this purpose, but I've read it's pretty effective. Um, the glow in the dark thing is neat. They glow only from the underside, so you'd want to look at the gills. Hmm. It's a tiny little gilled mushroom and. Common name, the bitter oyster, suggests, oh, you should be able to eat it. It would just be bitter, and maybe it's, like, related to an oyster, but none of those things are true. You shouldn't eat it. <laughs> it is bitter. Um, it just should not be eaten. So if but we were to take to these collect. home and look at them in the dark? They don't look terribly fresh. Yeah, that's what, think, I gonna, that's what I was going to do. Maybe these ones are first coming out. It's sometimes hard to tell with mushrooms yeah. how long they've been hanging around, but these don't look... Yeah. Because the edges should be more regular. Mm. They're, like, collapsed and beginning to crack and split from dryness. Well, we bring home sticks and logs and periodically watch them fruit and we get surprises things that we never brought home uh, and that's always fun and then repeats of things that we have brought home which is right. just as validating you know, yeah. kind of growing our own mushrooms so to speak these were black trumpets oh yeah look at that that's my favorite species of all that's what we brought for you to try these grow with oak and beech i think here it's, it must be the oak yeah, we don't a see bunch them grow with oak that much yeah we, usually when we find black trumpets it's under beech maybe they still have the nice smell do they usually grow they off do. moss like this? These. I don't Sorry. smell anything. Oh yeah, these ones totally you can smell them for sure. Delectable? That's amazing. That's what they taste like mainly, smoky oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, really strong. We wouldn't want to 
collect these, of course, because they're they're withered and yeah. dehydrated, yep. not, you know, getting soggy. Right. right. Sometimes people will find a mushroom in the wild that's dried out. Call it field dried and throw it in the pot, and sometimes that's okay, but these are soggy. So sure. Here's something kind of boring and crusty. Do you want to talk about this one, Ryan? Boring and crusty. I mean, so, <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting that you say that, right? I mean, so tell me, like, all right, so tell me about it, but then tell me why you say it's boring. Well... I would like to answer the second question first. Most people don't care to look at this kind of mushroom because it's hard to tell that it even is one. But it's another one that grows on the undersides only of sticks and logs. It's just so very common that we, you know, we find it kind of interesting because we see it so much. What I like about it is it changes color. It's called the olive tooth. It's got these little hanging spines like structures that look like teeth. Um, nice. Latin name's actually Hydnoporia olivacea. Uh, olivacea refer to the olive like green, gray, brown colors that it can have. Sometimes it can even look purplish-orange. And uh, Hydnoporia is in reference to the pores. Uh, so teeth-like pores, I think, is what the Latin name is in, means. But So this is, sometimes when we're teaching a class, we show this species as an example of, all right, has anyone ever seen mushrooms with teeth underneath them before? Sure. Rather than gills or maybe pores. A lot of people have never seen one of the teeth fungi. But technically, this one, if you look very closely, the teeth are actually, they're pores that are, elongated and jagged so hmm. it looks like teeth. Um, the jury's still out on whether it's a tooth or a pore <laughs> but it's resupinate so it never grows a real fruiting body it lies Got it. down supine. So they call that a resupinate mushroom. And, and so when you guys are I mean when you're leading walks and leading classes I mean you know I guess the I guess you call that one boring because the exciting mushrooms to find are the ones that are big Edible. Bright, edible, those kinds of things, Every right? Every hand shoots up. Is it edible? And now one of our mycologist friends, Lawrence Millman, jokes, the new question is, is it medicinal? Right. No one wants to know if it's edible <laughs> anymore. They just want to jump right to the fact that it's going to be used as medicine. And Some of the information comes from kind of folk medicine from different parts of the world. Sure. And not to say that that has no validity. Um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of it does. But I don't know which parts of it do and which, which don't and which are just which ideas about the medicinal qualities of mushrooms are just ideas or rumors and a lot of studies have been done but i think i just kind of urge caution to people in general um i think people get this idea that you know calling something medicinal or taking something that's medicinal because everybody wants a silver bullet Right. Everybody wants, oh, I don't feel good. I want to take one thing or this other thing that's going to make it right. Instead of habit, lifestyle change, diet. Exactly. Uh, or addressing work. things very specifically. So it's like, you know, I currently don't have cancer. Right. But like so that I shouldn't take cancer drugs that are supposed to remove cancer from the body. Those are medicines. Right? right. Those are that is medicinal. But if it's not something, you know, or if I don't have any aches and pains, I shouldn't take ibuprofen. Right. Or, or aspirin, right? So the idea that you're sort of taking you know, this, this blanket term medicinal, I think you're right. I think it, it is, it, maybe it's not dangerous, but it can lead to a it misunderstanding and it can lead to a misuse. Too much of anything can be a, a bad thing. It's a concept we learned from uh, Brett Mayett, who teaches about wild plants in southern Rhode Island. And he pushed this notion of diversity of diet. And, you know, as Americans, our diets can sometimes be restricted to a relatively small number of plants and products and um, to diversify that um, is healthy. It gives the immune system different building, building blocks, blocks to yeah. interpret and possibly copy or, or use or learn how to defend against. I'm not an immunologist. I'm, I'm just saying that that made a whole lot of sense to me, diversity yeah. of diet. As long as it's 
things that are healthy and safe to eat. Sure. Then the more of them you uh, take in, uh, the more sort of more data your immune system has. And and I mean, and, and for me, as someone who loves to cook and loves to eat, the more interesting it is, right? I mean, for if sure. I had to eat the same thing for lunch every day, I think it would drive yeah. me insane. Have you ever heard of the alcohol ink caps or drinker's bane? Yes. I mean, I've seen the alcohol inkies, but as someone who enjoys alcohol, I've never consumed it. <laughs> um. My son seems to have been good luck this year for uh, Mayatakis. Oh, I, well, lots of people were complaining really about them, but, you know, twice I was on hikes with him and we found some really, really wonderful ones. Kids are great mushroom hunters being loaded to the ground. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. And their eyes are usually pretty sharp and perceptive. What have we here? Blackfoot polypores? Yeah. The polypores badius. This one I've never, I've never seen one of those before. Isn't that cool? They're, yeah. They're kind of like growing bullets, on like a down um, Because they have a regular mushroom shape. Yeah. But they are a polypore. Huh. Um, this would look a little... Here's something interesting. These are called carbon balls, the hypoxylons. Um, feel them. They're completely like rock solid. Oh my gosh. And that's a mushroom. Like <laughs> someone would think you're setting off fireworks out here. But <laughs> the carbon balls are a pretty amazing form. Do you keep a list of what you've found regionally? We don't keep a list of what we find. We keep a list of what we've eaten. Got it. Ryan keeps the master list. Do you want to tell him how many we're up to? Yeah, as far as the ones we've tried, yeah, we're, we're right up at, at about 250 species. Wow. Cool. Birches are my favorite breed. Yeah, that's They're a really neat looking chaga one. and birch polypores, the medicinal mushrooms. They'll grow exclusively on birches. So these are one of our trees that we tell mushroomers to identify, learn to identify. Now that one's... Uh, a lot of people would kind of overlook that if they're looking for a birch, but because uh, it's not a bright white birch. Yep. Uh, that I believe is actually a yellow birch. Which mm. has those small little shreds of. Right. It looks very shaggy. There's a couple of them here in this forest. Yeah. Yeah. And in Rhode Island. Up and down. In Rhode Island, most of the chaga that we find is on yellow birch rather than white. Birch. Oh right, like like with Earth Care when I found that piece. That was, oh, the first, that, was you? The, that was the first chaga I've ever found. Uh, nice. I'm sorry we had to split it up. Oh, whatever. That's fine. I, it, was deli- it worked out delicious. What did you do with it? I just, I mean, I put it in a big pot of water and boiled it for, you know, boiled it for an hour or so, I think, hour and a half maybe, and then drank it. Nice. So is that chaga up there? That's a chaga. More chaga. Where? You, oh, you didn't see it, Em? That's what I was pointing at. I was looking at, at this. <laughs> So as we were just saying, you know, uh, yellow birch in Rhode Island is is the main host tree for chaga in our experience. Nice. And there's one right there. Um, so chaga is doesn't look like a mushroom when people imagine a mushroom, right? It's not like a fact, Mario Brothers mushroom. In fact, it's not a mushroom at all. It's the mycelium you collect, not the fruiting body. It's kind of the reverse of a mushroom. It's my, bundles of mycelium gathered together in what's called the sclerodium. Um, and it's bundles of hyphae. The tiny little bits of mycelium that be, that are the beginning of a mycelium, so it's like a bundled stored energy mass, and it absorbs botulinic acid from the birch tree, and it works synergistically with our own bodies, and that's what they consider making it medicinal. Chaga will grow on other types of trees, but only the ones on birch are collected as medicinal because huh. of that botulinic acid. I'm not oh. sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I think I am. But Betulina is the Latin name of uh, birch trees. I Got it. So there's a. Uh, uh, as Emily said, sort of a reverse thing here, which is in, normally with mushroom hunting, you leave the mycelium alone and you collect its fruit, the mushrooms. But in the case of chaga, you're collecting a, a sort of a, a, a reservoir of the mycelium itself. It does produce a mushroom uh, that's small and grows under the bark of the birch and is very seldom seen. Um, so it, it's sort of a reverse situation. We're collecting the mycelium rather that's than... Rather than the mushroom. 
Cool, so how do we collect it since we didn't bring an axe? Well, we've developed a nice technique for that, and it generally involves scoping around and looking for a, a thick log with a blunt end. All right, so we found our chaga, and, it, and it, it looks like it's, I don't know, does it cause the wound in the tree, or is it growing in the wound That's, in the tree? It's controversial about chaga. Some say it's parasitic. I've recently heard one person say it's endomycorrhizal, so instead of attacking the organism, it may be living within and protecting the organism. And because you harvest the entire mycelial mass, it's become controversial collecting chaga in the wild. We still see it very abundantly. We don't think it's over-harvested, but some people complain it's becoming over-harvested in areas where it's more vi- like more abundant and viable. Sure. Um, there are like some in Maine, companies, and uh, there's some companies profiting off of wild chaga m- making, in Canada. Making uh, pro- products with chaga, yep. and of course, you know, uh, that's only natural. It's a, it's a healthy thing to, to make a tea from, and it's a delicious tea. And, uh, you know, of course, it's, it's something to consider. You know, over-harvesting is, uh, is an issue with any natural resource. And yeah. uh, so we just kind of say, don't, don't, uh, don't go nuts, you know, collect a chaga and make some chaga. You don't yeah. have to collect every one you see. Um, it will grow back in the same spot, just more slowly. We've seen, it, um, seen them in harvested areas where, it, where there used to be a chaga, and it's, it grows well around, around the edges of it, and it will come back. So... We don't harvest every one we see. We like yep. leaving, you know, good karma in the forest. Sizable harvest. It really is. I mean, like I've weighty. got two full hands. Now you've got a lot of chaga to work with. Yeah. That amber modeling, the coloration on the interior, is key to its identification. Not only is it a black canker, but a lot of things that grow on birch can look black or like a canker. There is a serious dangerous lookalike for chaga, the black cherry knot. Apios borina morbosa. Uh, it grows only on cherry and plum trees. So if you can tell your trees... Right. As a bir- being a birch, a birch yeah. then you can really confidently identify your chagas. But the problem is young cherries can look a lot like birch. The lenticels, the slits in the bark are similar, and they, should, they have a little shine to them too, so like to, birch can. So to be really sure you've got a chaga, there's, there's two things you have to check for. One is the, the outside of the chaga has a pattern of cracking. If, well, first of all, it's black. It's not dark brown. It's black like like it's been burned, like coal yeah. or something. And it's got all these cracks in it that tend to crack sort of 90 degrees. You get these little cubes. Mm-hmm. So it's this black cracking cubic pattern on the outside. And then on the inside, there's a mottled, speckled pattern of kind of golden ochre and brown. Nourish and Flourish is a handcrafted ad-free integration of print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Explore emerging trends in nutrition, regenerative agriculture, and travel. Nourish and Flourish. Thought-provoking content and innovative links to videos allow you to view the future of food and healthy living. Join us on a journey of discovery from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Junie Porrent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, J.J. Johnson, 
and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. We are offering a special early bird ticket price until November 30th, so don't miss out. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks. Thank you guys so much for, you know, for walking around in the woods earlier and for coming to sit down with me and spend the time. Can you introduce yourselves and, um, you know, tell me what you do? Uh, my name is Ryan Bouchard, and this is Emily Schmidt, and we are the Mushroom Hunting Foundation, and we teach people how to safely enjoy uh, wild mushrooms in this country, and uh, uh, particularly uh, New England and the Northeast. Yeah. Um, my name is Emily Schmidt, and I'm also you know the co-creator, vice president of the Mushroom Hunting Foundation. Our mission is to basically demystify the mushroom and, and remove the fear associated with it in our culture. Because in other cultures, mushrooms are so appreciated and celebrated in Asia, throughout Europe, Russia, Germany. Um, yeah, you know. they say some countries in Europe, uh, you know, Italy, France, Germany, Poland, Russia, um, uh, a lot of Eastern Europe are, are very into wild mushrooms. It's much more a part of their culture. Um, in England, apparently not so much, and we've sort of inherited that in America, the, the British sort of attitude towards mushrooms, which is, you know, don't poison yourself with those wild mushrooms, which is reasonable enough, of course. Sure. Sa- safety is important, right? And, and we talked about that before we went out into the, into the woods, um, you know, but it seems to me, I mean, you know, and regular listeners of this show will know that I am interested in mushrooms because I've talked about it you know, more, more than once on Feast Your Ears. And I think that, you know, what you guys are doing is super important because I think that while people can get interested in something like mushroom hunting and they can buy books, there is nothing that can replace the experience of finding mushrooms alongside a professional and an expert. That's true. I agree. We, we lead guided walks and uh, when you find mushrooms and see them in person, you get to smell them. I mean, you could spend all day trying to describe a smell. But like with anything in the world of mushrooms, it's a component, a piece of information, the smell or the aroma. It's not the entire tale of how to tell an edible mushroom from a poison. So it's always a combination of key right. features that tells you what to... What you yeah, do. I mean, I think some of the fear, I mean, you know, would you guys say that you think some of the fear of the, the mushrooms, I mean, comes from people just making gross assumptions? I mean, I, as someone who now like understands how to identify a mushroom, right? How to look at the features, how to look at the pore surface, how to do a spore print, how to kind of work towards these identifying factors. It's interesting to me to think about how a culture would get to the point of just completely swiping aside what is both a delicious and nutritious food source. Well, Ryan thinks we kind of inherited from our own British culture and colonization by the British originally. Um, because of their fear of mushrooms, and since we inherited their language, we inherited their style, oh. their cultural attitude towards mushrooms. Um, no, it's not that nobody in England hunts for mushrooms. Sure. In right. fact, the um, uh, the bluet mushroom, um, uh, that's a tradition that comes from England. It, it was originally uh, called the blue hat, and it's mean the hat meaning the cap. 
of the mushroom, and it's more purplish than blue for sure. But uh, blue hat sort of morphed into bluet, hmm. and uh, B L E W I T. And the bluets are a, a delicious mushroom that that the British uh, do enjoy eating. But um, yeah, uh, apparently India is also sort of mycophobic and. Um, I, 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 bet, I bet they got that from, from the British as well. I've read sure. in Lawrence Millman's book, um, if he's correct, that the Indian people believe that mushrooms spring up from where dogs urinate. So that might explain why they don't eat them there. But they do get a lot of morels, which they export. Right. They're not really used in traditional cuisine, though. Mm. Apparently, David Aurora, he's traveled the world a lot studying mushrooms uh, as an ethnomycologist, uh, studying the way they're used in different cultures. And he did find one Indian chef who had found some great ways to incorporate morel mushrooms into Indian cuisine. But generally, it's not done. They just export them. I feel like morels are kind of an interesting sort of special case because they, they have the kind of, um, you know, they're, they're held up in such high regard on like a, in like a, a high-end culinary sense, like truffles almost, you know, right. quite, but, you know, similarly. And I think we sometimes put those things into these weird categories of like, oh, you can't do anything with them, but you have to savor the object by itself. And, you know. It's kind of my philosophy with wild ingredients. I don't like to doctor them up with a lot of other sure. components because it masks or obscures flavors or it distracts the, 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 the tongue from a, a texture. Um, so with mushrooms, I very, I always use cell, like few ingredients really pared down, uh, like a wild ravioli I'll use, so just ricotta, or a little mascarpone for creaminess inside, but leak the mushroom, the meat of the feast. Right. Don't just sprinkle a couple mushrooms on the top and say it's a mushroom dish. It has to be like incorporated <laughs> in the middle, you know, yeah, like I, the, I can, the main I can, I can ingredient. We, we went to, um, uh, th- this spring we were in Michigan to sort of participate in some of the morel festivals there. Uh, the Midwest is famous for having more abundant morel mushrooms. And there was a special dinner at a French restaurant there that we went to. And uh, every course of the meal had morels included. Even the dessert. There was like a nice cheese plate and sort of sweet. And drink and, uh, and, the, and the, the main course. And yet, it, we, I agree, it was unforgettable. It was fantastic. But... In the end, we, we said, geez, you know, that, that sort of breaded chicken with the few morel bits sprinkled morel over it. gravy or whatever. That was great, but I would have preferred, you know, a bunch of breaded morel with little bits of chicken <laughs> yeah, sprinkled right. on top. Sure. And, uh, and in the end, we said, geez, we might have saved that hundred bucks. We, we should have taken that hundred bucks and spent it on a pound of morels from the guy that was standing at the local gas station selling morels out of the back of his truck. <laughs> Um, you know, get, get a pound of morels and fry them in butter and just eat them with a knife and a fork. One of the wonderful things about mushrooms is their scarcity that makes them more desirable. Um, the things like morels and truffles that can't be farmed can only be collected in the wild and make them so lauded. And, and I think that's um, justified because they are very special flavors and unique things to find. It takes a tremendous amount of luck to find a pristine mushroom. Yeah. And then it should be used, you know, celebrated. And, and I think that's part of it too. And I, I, you know, I love the idea that you're also giving people this opportunity to have these experiences. One of the things I love about foraging for mushrooms is not just the foraging for mushrooms, right? It's the walking out in the woods. We were walking out in the woods and we were looking for mushrooms today and you found this awesome dragonfly. 
Yeah. Right? So, I mean, and you were attuned to looking down and to looking for stuff. And so you found this other interesting thing. And so it, it for me, is a lot about that experience and encouraging people to have to those spend experiences. spend time in the woods. Yeah. The forest bathing, have you heard of Shinrin-yoku? That's mm. like a tradition in Japan where people spend time in the forest. They even have medical appointments in the forest. Because being in and amongst living um, plants and trees, they give off certain chemicals that benefit our immune system for up to a week. If we spend half an hour only in a forest, it benefits our immune system for a week's time. So this forest bathing is a is an interesting practice that we like try to tune into the meditative aspect of mushroom hunting. It's very uh, a good exercise for the mind. I believe the more you search for mushrooms, the more you find them because you you kind of program your brain for those search images. And the more you search your field guides in the winter time, the more you put those images in your brain of mushrooms in their natural habitat, and they're easier to spot. I think it's a great exercise just the searching for the eyes and the mind. Um, you may be helping to prevent Alzheimer's constantly working sure. with your mind, thinking and observing and, well, and, and finding think, new things. And I think, the, you know, to your point, the, the thing, the, the recognizing them and the, uh, and the knowing them is really where it's at, right? The, well, that's... The joy the, of discovery. The joy of discovery, but also just the knowing them, right? Once, once you know, and whether it's because you've been on one of the Mushroom Foundation walks and you found it with you guys, or because you know exactly what you're looking at. Like, now that I found Chaga, right? The first time I found Chaga was with you guys at Earth Care Farm. The second time was today. With us and with you in again. your own backyard, practically. And now that I found Chaga, if I find it again, I know what it is. It's the same as looking at a carrot or a mango and knowing right. what that thing Especially is now because it's in my brain. We talked about the black cherry knot, and you'll notice that now that when you see it on cherry or plum trees, it looks like this weird black canker, but it doesn't have the amber interior that chaga does. Right. So it's easier to see it once you've seen it in person, yeah. like you were saying. Yeah. So um, I, I agree about the sort of um, um, the experience of being in the woods and the kind of plethora of um, uh, shit that you can find. <laughs> 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 the, um, New things. And the, the, yes, uh, the, the sort of uh, experience of sort of becoming a naturalist just by walking around in the woods and appreciating what you see. And, and that ties into mushroom identification. And, and, and anybody who's good at identifying uh, other forms of life, say birds, you know, identifying what, what species is this bird. Um, when I was younger, I was really into moths and butterflies and identifying, you know, you look at the pattern and you can identify the species. And that type of thinking is uh, essential to mushroom hunting. You, you, you have to, I mean, we've been talking about how fun it is and, and uh, the, you know, uses in different cultures, but ultimately to do it safely, uh, it's, uh, you're going to rely on science, uh, the science of mycology, the study of fungi. So safe mushroom hunting relies on species identification and to get the species identified correctly, you need to understand the science of it, mycology, the study of fungi. And so recognizing different species is sometimes easy and sometimes rather difficult. So we've got a system of assigning a difficulty level to different species of mushrooms. Some of them we consider safe for beginners because you can read about them and look at some pictures and, and find one and bring it home, compare it to your book, and look at the pictures, read the paragraphs again. Yeah, that's what this is. That's, that's what we consider safe for beginners. Some of them are more difficult. We would consider them intermediate level or even experts only. Some mushrooms, you have to look at a whole list of features and look at them very closely 
and make sure that every single thing on that list checks out. The way the gills are attached to the stalk, the shape of the gills, the shape of the cap, the, the stalk, the consistency of the flesh. What color does it bruise if you slice it open? What does it smell like? What color is the spore print? I mean, there's this whole a whole list of things. All the way down to even size and shape of the actual spores, right? That's a microscopic level in some cases. People will be happy to learn. We do have a microscope at home with which we've viewed some spores. But people will be happy to know of the over almost 250 species we've eaten, we've never used a microscope to identify them. That's taking things to the next level. You really don't need a microscope to identify mushrooms, but taking spore prints is definitely important. Taking a mushroom, leaving it right side up on a piece of glass, covering it overnight and seeing what color the spores are by comparing different colors of paper under the glass is the best way to make a spore print. But using half black or half white paper under the mushroom cap as it's dropping its spores can also give you a good basis of color comparison. If they're light spores or dark spores, they'll still be visible. Yeah, and I, I mean, spore prints are also super beautiful. I mean, I, I love are. spore prints because they look like almost a like quasi 3D photograph of like a negative. What the, yeah, yeah, like a negative of the underside of the mushroom. There are a, a number of benefits to the, the activity of mushroom hunting, and, and not the least of which is the fact that there's this delicious prize out there <laughs> that motivates you to not only physically go out looking for it, and of course you find one, and that encourages you to go over that next hill and see if there's more under the trees there. <laughs> it's true. It, it, it drives you on. and um, But I think a lot of what's overlooked about it is, is the, the mental process of identifying the mushroom so that you can make sure it's safe for you to eat it and it's not going to poison you. Now, first of all, we always say that when in doubt, throw it out. That's the main rule of mushroom hunting. If you don't know what species you have, there's no way you're going to throw it in a frying pan. To be faced with, not, not to make it sound over dramatic, but it's a bit of a life or death decision. You've got this mushroom. Can you eat it and enjoy a delicious gourmet food or are you going to poison yourself? So... Uh, for one thing, there's the main rule of mushroom hunting. When in doubt, throw it out. You never eat a mushroom unless you've identified it and determined it to be an edible species. And that process uh, really makes you pay attention. And you learn things that you're never going to forget. And that's something we need. I mean, in, in the world right now, you can spend a lot of time on the computer and you can learn about a lot of things. But to actually get to the point of, am I going to eat this thing or not, is an extra layer of reality to that. Sure. <laughs> and uh, I, I, so as you said, you know, you know the, the experience of actually being out in the forest and finding them, seeing them, collecting them, and um, learning how to, how to uh, prepare them. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Emily, about the, you know, the, the mushroom brush? and the, you know, Oh, yeah. A lot of people think you have to wash your mushrooms, but that's like a sin because mushrooms are about 90% water, and the whole point of the cooking process is to drive that moisture out. Mm. Nobody wants that slippery, soggy, insipid Pennsylvania Dutch canned mushroom feeling in their <laughs> mouth. Seldom people enjoy mushrooms because of their texture. Few people enjoy mushrooms because of their texture. Um, and... It's, just, it's a shame because in the, in the wild, there's so many varieties of textures and flavors. Um, you know, it's hard to get bored by, but in the cooking process, you want to brush your mushrooms dry. We always use a mushroom brush attached to our knives, so you can use any kind of brush at home. Even like wall paint brushes are my favorite to use because they have optimal stiffness. Um, and just an inexpensive paintbrush at Home Depot will be perfect for cleaning your mushrooms. You don't need a fancy mushroom brush sold for that you know, purpose. Sometimes I find the ones sold are a little too tough for most wild, wild mushrooms. 
And um, brushing them is important. You also have to assess them for freshness, signs of mold, um, spoilage, and reject a specimen that is showing signs of spoilage because especially mold, you don't want to just cut away the moldy part and eat right. the rest of the mushroom. I mean, that, that's a very interesting point because I think when a lot of people think about food, they're buying it mostly from a store, right? Mm -hmm. And in a grocery store, there are people who are tasked with taking anything that doesn't look nice and shiny and perfect yeah. off the shelves while some of that stuff may still be edible when you're out foraging mushrooms you may come across mushrooms that are all the same mushrooms in various states of their life cycle right. right so you may come across a log that has a bunch of mushrooms on it some of which have been eaten by bugs some yeah. of which haven't and then you're right you do have to assess those things and a lot of people worry about the bugs it's the biggest competitor besides other mushroom hunters of course <laughs> is the insects that will eat your mushrooms and nobody wants to see a slug sizzling in your fry pan so you have to carefully use a paring knife um, it's safe to eat mushrooms that have been touched by a little bug damage as long as you pare those sections away Sure. Um, and if you do eat a few little bugs, it's not going to hurt you as long as they're cooked. <laughs> I, I did hear somebody once say that they don't worry that much sometimes about some of like the little larvae that appear, especially in like chicken of the woods and stuff, because A, they're nice. protein, and B, the only thing that they've eaten is that mushroom. That mushroom. Uh, that's, true. <laughs> that's true. I just don't, I don't eat the really bug tunnel ones no, of course I... because it's like their waste is in there too. It's, yep. I, I agree. I just thought it was an interesting point, right? That it if, is. If, if we're moving and, and if we're talking about... the same flavor. Yeah, and if we're talking about alternative food sources, right, we are also at a time period where people are moving towards consuming insects as well. Yeah. So... <laughs> yep. That's the yep. famous quote from Let's David get Abrora, used to it. It's just a little extra protein. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if the, a mushroom is uh, very special, we kind of tend to ignore a few bug tunnels. <laughs> that's right. That's right. If we find, uh, let's say it's something like uh, a hen of the woods. All right. We find large hens of the woods and sections that have been damaged by insects. We'll just chop them completely away and discard them. But um, let's say we find a uh, um, the white bog bullweed, um, uh, Lexinum holopus, which is... Um, one of my absolute favorite mushrooms um, grows in kind of damp, boggy areas. Uh, we tend to always find it on an overcast day, and uh, I don't know what that, that that's random, but um, we just have this experience of it looking very spooky. So let's say we come across something really special like uh, the white bog bully, Lexinum holopus. It's got a delicious, savory flavor with a bit of sweetness, too, and uh, one of my absolute favorites. So if we find one of those, and we slice it up, and there's a few little tunnels through it. Who cares? Uh, you know, we're, we're gonna fry the slices up completely, and whatever insects may be in there will be, you know, sizzled to practically nothing, and you know, it, it's negligible. In our country, most people think mushrooms taste like mushrooms, yeah. and and that that means a certain species. And and there's a reason right. everybody thinks they taste the same, which is that when you go to the supermarket, you've mostly got White button mushrooms, brown button mushrooms, portobello mushrooms, baby bellas, all of those varieties are the same species of mushroom. <laughs> right. So that's why yeah. they all taste the same. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, that's, that's a super valuable point, and people don't know that, right? Because they look different because they're at a different stage of growth, right? When they're harvested or they're slightly different um, growing, you know, conditions. growing conditions that give them those aspects. And, you know, and, and then, you know, I, I think people are starting to come into things like shiitakes, right? Like people are starting to shiitakes, oysters, um, you know, and then if you, if you spend a lot of time at, you know, I feel like farmer's markets, there are people who are growing, um, you know, a couple of other 
kinds varieties, of mushrooms. A couple right. of other varieties. It's becoming yeah. very popular. Mushrooming is mushrooming, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. It really is. It's, it's in every like publication I look at now. There's yeah. like articles about mushrooms. I have a little clippings at home for all my little mushroom articles. It seems to be becoming more popular as people are returning to nature. It's a big movement now with the food revolution. Um, people wanting to know where their food is sourced. It has to be. Yeah. You know, gourmet, different, um, exotic, you know, wild, organic. And mushrooms are like all of those things. Also sustainably, sustainably sustainable. harvestable. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about that for a minute because once Great. the mycelium is established, you can pick a mushroom for perhaps decades. We know people who have been picking hen of the woods from the same tree for 40 years and it still produces a mushroom every year and still has leaves on the upper crown because the maitake or the hen of the woods mushroom is a very slow saprobic decomposing mushroom. So it decomposes the ba- the, the roots um, system and the base of the trunk very slowly over time. Um, and other mushrooms will come back in the same spots. We saw a very moving little dedication to um, a mycologist who has passed on by another mycologist named Noah Siegel, who was saying, years ago, he taught me this mushroom, this mushroom right here. And he was showing, you know, the, talking about a spot where it was growing. And, and years later, even though the mycologist is gone, I visited with the mushroom he showed me, and oh, it remained there, and it always will. And I found that very moving because mushrooms are like seeing your friends everywhere you go. Once you recognize them, they're fruiting in one location. They're probably fruiting in other locations too, and that's usually the case. We can visit a patch, and it'll be productive. So we go to another spot, and it's also producing. It's it's pretty amazing the synchronicity of the fruitings, and and also yeah. being able to recognize things as soon as you see them for what they are, and be able to take them home to cook them for dinner. That's just a bonus. Can you talk a little bit about best practices? So, I mean, you talk, you talk about, yeah, foraging ethics. If you talk about how mushrooming is becoming more popular, and I think that's awesome, right? And you guys have built a business around teaching people how to do this thing that you are super interested in, and I'm super interested in, and more people are super interested in. You know, what are the ethics around foraging? And I guess, secondary question, do you think that we could reach a point where, like, we, by sharing this thing we love, have ruined it for ourselves. <laughs> Not with mushrooms. When we first got into mushrooming, I didn't want to do this for a living because I loved my mushroom spots. I was very guarded about my mushroom spots. I didn't want to share this with the world because I was worried about the environmental impact. But with the mycelium, it's it's very resilient. It will overwinter. It becomes dormant. It puts out mushrooms with the right environmental conditions and nutrients, and that's reliable. So it is very sustainable to pick a mushroom. You can dig it up. You can set it on fire. It will return. The mycelium is very resilient. All oh, right, morels often grow where there's been a fire. Sometimes right? they favor disturbed areas. Yeah. They have all kinds of growing adaptations. Um, one of the things we try to sh- teach people is, is that. And we hear a lot of people saying, oh, cut the mushroom off. Don't pull it out by its roots or you'll damage the mycelium that it grows from. But the reality is that mycelium survives being frozen every winter. It survives its mushrooms being kicked over by deer, eaten by bugs, um, covered by mold and rotting into the ground. Um, You know, you could take the mushroom and cover it in gas and set it on fire. And the mycelium is still going to be underground there. It's going to be okay. Every once in a while someone will call us and say, I've got this big mushroom in my yard. Uh, I'll send you a picture of it. So they'll text us the picture and we'll say, oh yeah, that's, oh, that's the black staining polypore. Um, you can cook it like this. You can cook it like that. And at some point the person interrupts us and says, 
yeah, uh, can you come here and get it out of here for me? <laughs> so this, we don't okay. want it to ever come back. How do we do that? And there's so really the, no solution. The answer, yeah, is there anything I can do to make sure it stops growing here? I'm sorry, no, there isn't. Unless you want to douse your entire lawn in some kind of fungicide, which right. doesn't sound like a <laughs> safe plan to me. Um, and another thing about cutting them off at the base is actually a dangerous practice because sometimes, you, well, all of the time, you need the intact organism. You have to get... Clear away the debris at the base of the stalk, optimally without even touching your mushroom, because they can exhibit staining reactions with bruising. And then you take your knife and you kind of pop it out um, under the ground, so that way you get your mushroom out intact. Because there's always important information on the entire mushroom. You never want to cut it off at the base of the stalk because you're leaving the base of the stalk in the ground. If it says it stains yellow at the base of the stalk, what are you going to do when, you're, when you get to that part of your key? Yeah. You can't solve that problem because you cut it off at the base. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Um, it's a clean way to harvest mushrooms, but and every mushroom in a patch still needs to be inspected individually to make sure it's the same mushroom. We've seen lookalikes mixing in. So just cutting them off at the base, you're not really looking at the entire mushroom. So it's very much like picking berries off of a bush. Uh, they are going to grow back. And, uh, uh, so, so that yeah. being said, there are other guidelines with where you should harvest mushrooms from because you know, in certain states, it's illegal to pick in certain areas. Other states have introduced legislation to allow picking in public areas. So it's good to find out, you know, at, usually at a trailhead, they'll post regulations and you always want to follow those. If it says, if it's an Audubon property, for example, or it says not to disturb anything, if you can't even walk a dog or jog in that area, you probably shouldn't be picking anything. Right, it says some... don't pick vegetation, don't pick mushrooms. They mean everything. You know, leave only footprints and take only pictures is what they say that's right some areas are, are well, meant to like that. Um, meant to have the different organisms there for other people to observe them walking by and uh, you know if you're collecting them you're really robbing someone else of an experience and, and also private property people's lawns and yards I mean there have been some people in Rhode Island that have been very upset about people ultimately stealing their hen of the woods mushrooms off of their lawn there's a funny story we have with that a friend of ours we knew shall not be named, was going to pick a hen of the woods that was just over the side of a sidewalk in, in the yard. He figured, oh, this is a big mushroom. I, don't mean, I must know about it or want it. So he goes to set down to harvest it, and he hears this tiny voice piping from the porch, Daddy, stealing your mushroom! So, <laughs> so he took off running, leaving the mushroom for the family that sure. was growing it. But you never, ever know. So it's always good to knock on people's doors, ask permission. People are often very receptive to learning more. Or they just don't want anything to do with it and will give you the mushroom. Right. Very few people have asked us to keep a piece of it to cook themselves. But generally, um, you know, walking in the woods, whatever that happens to be, is the place to do it. Um, mushrooms associate with trees in various ways. Sometimes the mycelium is decomposing dead wood, which is the reason why our whole world isn't full of dead trees. If you do find that bonanza of mushrooms, you may want to leave some of it just in case. Let's say there's an old guy down the street who's been mushroom hunting for years and he can't get around too much anymore, and that's the only mushroom spot he knows of that he can get to. Sure. You know, I bet that guy would really appreciate if you, you know, leave a, a bit of it there, you know. So, so we do that sometimes. And, and other times we find a big mushroom and, and take the whole thing. Um, you know, it's, it's just like anything else in life. It's kind of, uh, it's hard to decide, uh, but just try not to be too greedy. Um, don't collect more, as Emily just said, don't collect more than you have time to even cook with or process. Um, it is, is perfectly okay to collect mushrooms that you're not going to eat. In fact, 
and we encourage our more advanced students to actually collect the poisonous mushrooms, bring them home, identify them with the books, figure out exactly what they are, study their features more in depth. Um, but of course, it should also be mentioned that if you've got mushrooms on your table, poisonous or edible, uh, make sure your dog doesn't jump up and, and grab a bite. Sure. They're not all edible. <laughs> and, and even if they were edible, uh, they'd be raw, and it would still probably make the dog sick. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a we lot of people... We get some calls about people's pets. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that wild mushrooms, almost all of wild mushrooms, have to be cooked. You can't eat them raw. We tell people when they're trying something new, try to cook it in a flavorless oil, not butter. Um, so they can really experience the flavor of the sure. mushroom more. But on the other hand... Mushroom's best friends are butter and salt. <laughs> and you never want to forget to salt your mushrooms because salt brings out the flavor incredibly so. And you don't want to salt them until the very end of the cooking process. This is a little nitpicky, but to salt them prematurely will force excess moisture out of them too soon. Mm. So they really steam and evaporate in the pan and the flavor evaporates in the pan. They get too juicy. One thing that I like to do when I find, like, you know, if I do find that big sort of, you know, maitake or chicken of the woods or something that fruits kind of voluminously, um, certainly if it's on, you know, either like, you know, land that is not public land, like if it's on private land, if it's on a friend's land or, you know, which, is, which, which has happened or on my father's land, um, I like to share it with people, right? Yeah. And, and so for me, that's one of the most exciting ones, too, is to be able to go and, and you talk about, Ryan, the idea of having an older neighbor. My father has a neighbor across the street. He used to forage a lot of mushrooms, and he still gets around really well, but it's not like he's out foraging. Right. So last year, I was able to bring him a bunch of chicken of the woods and hen of the woods, and it was a really nice thing to share That's with amazing. him. And he knew what they were, and he was super excited. Yeah. And then he gave me a giant squash out of his garden, this like heirloom Italian squash. So that was like a really fun, you know, sort of trick. We love reviving mm -hmm. that tradition. That's most of what our like students they come to us and. Um, because of their family traditions where their grandfather used to do it or their great-grandfather or their father and now they, they never really learned themselves. They just used to do it with them and they, now they don't feel confident as an adult in their identification. A lot of people don't think they can do mushroom identification but if you can tell a uh, shiitake mushroom from a button mushroom or a squash from a pineapple, you're doing plant and mushroom <laughs> identification right there. It's just totally. being observant and, and, and attentive to the key features. A lot of the traditions of mushroom hunting were not really passed on in America, or not fully passed on, and, and there are some reasons for that. I guess part of it, I'm, I'm sure part of it was because the uh, parents or grandparents maybe didn't know the, the words in English for the technical parts of the mushrooms. So rather than giving them a bad lesson, they just decided to not really teach the lesson. Mm. Uh, all right, kids, I know these mushrooms, but don't you go picking them. And then there was another factor, which was in the previous century, it was a little uncool to be out gathering food from the woods. You know, this, come on, Grandpa, we're in America now. Yeah, our is... food from factories. Uh, so yeah. don't embarrass us by going out in the woods and bringing home mushrooms. You're freaking people out. Well, <laughs> you know, these days, fortunately, people are finding that actually it is really cool to go out in the woods and gather mushrooms. And it's very exciting. Uh, it can get you some nice gourmet food, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating pursuit along the way. We, we've been trying to reconnect people to their... Traditions from their own cultures, and it's it's fascinating. Sometimes we, um, you know, we'll hear people refer to a certain mushroom with a certain word. Um, the lady said, "Oh, is that the popinki?" And I said, "Okay, she's Polish, or one of her parents anyway was Polish." And um, and so we can, you know, it's it's neat to sort of uh, 
uh, see the culture coming through in different different words and different names for mushrooms. Um, and not to mention the joy and adventure that it provides. I mean, the sheer sense of adventure mushrooming can, you know, entail is just and nothing in my life has brought me so much joy. So we love sharing that with other people. The discovery, just finding a mushroom when you're out in the forest, is a simple pleasure sure. because this morning like, we found oh it. Chaga. It was so exciting. <laughs> yes, and, and, and especially when you can recognize it. You know, same thing. That's what I love about going into the woods. There's always something new to observe. There's always something to marvel at. Um, there's always something you'll encounter that you've never seen before. And Ryan's new book, uh, Details, although say for beginner species, it's called Gourmet Mushrooms of the Northeast, and it focuses, instead of being like a larger field guide that gives you thousands of, or hundreds of species that you can't eat, and with small detail, you know, small paragraphs with little detail, Ryan's book goes into the easier mushrooms that are edible in great detail. So all you need to do is read the panel of information provided, and you're all ready to go picking on your own. Mm, of course. For the beginner-safe mushrooms in Ryan's book. Right, right. And it references a number of other books that you would want to get if you want to take right. it to the next level. We have several field guides, and we use them to cross-reference, especially if we haven't seen a mushroom for a season or two. Check it out in your field guide again. Make sure you're familiar with the key features. There's no harm in, in reassuring yourself that you have the right mushroom. Um, and often more than one field guide is important. Ryan's book does detail other books like Mushrooms Demystified, the Audubon Field Guide by Gary Linkoff. We've learned a lot from those are the two books we learned the most from. But our book um, is available on our website, mushroomhunting.org, if anyone's interested in purchasing it. Yeah, Gourmet Mushrooms of the Northeast uh, is loaded with information, and I designed it to be the best introduction to mushroom hunting. It comes across like a calendar, but it's really... Uh, a... The other way we teach people is, is with our classes, cooking demonstrations, guided walks. We've uh, done are... birthday parties, family reunions. Yeah, it's, it's a, really a lot of fun. I mean, We actually did great. a sermon at a church once about mushrooms. <laughs> it's a class. You know, our mushroom festival is a class, but it's so much fun that it ends up feeling more like a party. And people are often surprised at how much they've learned during this party. So it's a, it's a fantastic thing to do for so many reasons. So that's so mushroomhunting.org, that's that's where people should contact you. Yep, and there's a lot of information about our classes, what we do, some pictures of events that we've conducted and now you can get help with mushroom identification online. There are some real experts out there. If you post a picture of a mushroom, you better be sure of who is responding to that post. Um, just because you're putting it in a mushroom chat room, it doesn't mean that the response is gonna come from an expert. And we've, we've found that um, you know doing a, a class in person or you know people can once they've taken a class with us people can text us pictures of mushrooms and we'll identify them often we have to say you know, that picture is not very clear you need to get a better picture <laughs> send us a picture of underneath the mushroom okay can you slice that mushroom in half and send us a picture of the in interior the context that's called the flesh of the mushroom and various things like that to sort of narrow it down that's uh, very helpful because you know it's us that you're talking to. It's not, you know, Joe Schmo from the internet. Never trust one source of information. You don't want to just say, oh, this guy on the internet says he eats this mushroom, yeah. so I'll try it. How did you guys get into mushroom okay. hunting in the first place? Uh, well, I'll, I'll start with this one. I first tried wild mushrooms in high school. My friend Soleil Martin's grandfather would pick mushrooms and make his own mixed marinated mushrooms. And every time I went over there, I actually got in trouble with their mom because I ate too many of them. <laughs> they were so good. And this chicken of the woods stuff was like the color, vibrant orange, the texture, like meat. It was unbelievable to me. And I always wanted to learn how to do it, but it seemed so dangerous. It wasn't until I met Ryan 
And we always had a shared love of hiking. We decided to take a class with the Audubon Society one year. Yeah, we took a class with a guy named Joe Metzen, who teaches with the Rhode Island Audubon Society. And it was so entertaining and fascinating. Another student at the class, uh, Josh Hutchins, actually brought in a large chicken of the woods that he had found and was nice enough to split it up and, and share it with everybody. So we took home We were piece. positively addicted at that point to the <laughs> sheer flavors, and we knew we had to pursue these and find them on our own. That class by Joe Metzen really showed us what an entertaining subject it is. I, I mean, couldn't believe how enjoyable it was to learn about these things that grow in the forests all around us. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find out more online at mushroomhunting.org. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.